Boker Tov, everyone. My name is Ed Dingus, and welcome to The Reformed Rant, a podcast where I rant about things like theology, philosophy, apologetics, the church, even politics, but from a distinctively Reformed perspective. The Reformed Rant examines real-world issues going on in real time, examines those issues in the light of Scripture to help you think biblically about them so that your actions, your thoughts, your life honor Christ and glorify God. Now today I am ranting about church discipline, what I call fencing the community. So here's the question for you. When's the last time you saw someone disciplined from the church? When's the last time you saw someone excommunicated? The Lord saved me in 1979, almost 40 years ago. And I can tell you this, I have never seen anyone disciplined out of the church, excommunicated, subjected to the process. Never seen it in my entire life, ever. Okay, so that's what we're talking about today. Ask yourself another question. Why do the churches uh, avoid this practice? It is basic practice. So let's jump into the program. I want to start with Matthew chapter 18. And uh, verse 15. So if you have your Bible, turn over there. I'm going to read that. And then we're going to step through actually the process of how this is supposed to work. Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 15. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. So Jesus says this, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. In private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed. In heaven. So I'm going to stop there at verse 18. Step one, if you see your brother sin, confront the sin. All right. This is a problem just in and of itself in the churches, isn't it? Number one, we're not involved in each other's lives. That's a problem. There's really no discipleship training, no discipleship uh, relationships going on in the churches. Certainly none that are officially Uh, blessed, and formally managed by leadership in the Christian churches. This is a real problem with the concept of fencing the community. It's a problem with the concept of church discipline. It's a problem with the idea of a covenant community top to bottom. So if your brother sins, you as a believer, if we talk about love in 2019 all the time, if you're going to love your brother, If you're going to love your brother, you must confront the sin, okay? That's second, step two. When you do confront the sin, Jesus says, keep it private. Go to him in private, okay? Now, let's suppose he listens. If he listens, everything's fine. You don't go any further. You don't talk to anyone about it. You don't share it with anyone. You don't defame your brother. You don't damage your brother's reputation publicly. There's a reason Jesus said go in private. If he doesn't listen to you, you take two or three witnesses. 
These two or three witnesses understand that this brother has admitted to an act that is actually sin. You take, the, you take two or three witnesses. If he listens, great, you have won your brother. You take it no further. You don't share it with anyone else outside that circle, and the process is done. You have obeyed God, and you have loved your brother. If he does not listen to you and the two or three witnesses, now you tell it to the church so that, so that the whole church understands your brother is in sin. This involves an elder standing in front of the congregation and explaining the situation to the congregation and encouraging the congregation to do two things. Pray for that brother and go to that brother in love and encourage that brother to repent of his behavior. If he does not listen to the church, the scripture says, Jesus says, Treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. Excommunicate him. He is expunged from the community. Now, some people are going to say, gosh, does that mean you're making a pronouncement on his or her salvation? And it, it really does not. You don't have to go that far. And I understand how people are uncomfortable with that. So, you can grab a sip of coffee. So, what you simply say, the message that you're conveying is that I really, brother or sister, whomever, I really have no good reason to accept your profession of faith in Christ. You haven't evidenced genuine faith at this point, and I cannot in good conscience treat you like you have. That would be playing the hypocrite on my part. Okay, so the principle here in Matthew 18 is that the church, this is a foreign concept to us, the church has the authority and the responsibility to fence its community. Okay, try to forget your experience in the Christian church up to this point. Just ignore that. Try to, try to set that to the side, put it on the shelf. Okay, what we're interested in here at this point is... What does Jesus expect from his church? What does the Bible teach the church to do to conduct itself? In situations like this, how are we to conduct ourselves as a, as a covenant community? Okay. We also have a situation, I want to take you over to 2 Thessalonians 3, 14, 15, where we have a brother who refuses. Paul says, if any brother refuses to obey the instructions... Uh, in this letter or by this letter, then the church should react to that. The church should not ignore that brother's behavior. And this is what we're used to doing in modern American society in our churches. We ignore it. We, we treat it as if it isn't our business. And, and then we want to turn around and say, we're giving food to the hungry and loving people. Well, look, I'm sorry. You know, feeding somebody a hot dog um, and uh, is not necessary. It's not loving somebody. It's a good act. It's a good deed. It's something that we should do, uh, give the person the gospel at the same time. But we're talking about a brother whose soul is in trouble here, who is who is in jeopardy. And, you know, we can, it, we're fine with giving somebody a hot dog, but for some reason we have so much trouble 
confronting someone with their sin. So Paul says, number step, step one, if a brother doesn't obey the instructions of this letter, take special note of that person. That's the first step. Note them. Second step, do not associate with him. Now remember, this letter that Paul wrote is going to a church. So this is a church that's being told, you guys, as a church, note that person. Right? This isn't an individual thing. You've got the letter from Paul, and you have a brother in this scenario who is just simply refusing to obey the instructions in that letter. The church is instructed in that situation to make public note of that person. Make sure everybody knows it. Don't associate with him. Now, Paul says, don't, do not take up the attitude uh, toward that person that he's an enemy. Do not regard him as an enemy. What you do is you admonish him as a brother. Now, Paul isn't saying that he is a brother. Paul is saying that that's how you approach him. You admonish him as if he is a brother. In the, you don't assume the worst. You assume the best until, you go back to Matthew 18, this brother has proven that he is not what you thought he was. So you start off in 2 Thessalonians with noting that person, not associating with that person, regarding him as a brother and admonishing him. And you look at Matthew 18, you couple Matthew 18 with 2 Thessalonians here, chapter 3, if he refuses to listen to the church, now you're back to the excommunication piece. Now, uh, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul says it this way, we, we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. An unruly life can, can be either moral in how you're conducting yourself, how you're living your life, and it can also be in what you're confessing and embracing to be true Christian belief. If you're a person who denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that would fit into the category of, of leading an unruly life. If you're a, a Christian who is going out and getting drunk and uh, engaging in sexual immorality, that would be classified as an unruly life. The church is commanded to keep away from everyone who professes Christ and who lives that way. Okay? Now, let's move to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a very uh, popular passage. Everyone knows about this passage. You have a man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who is involved in an immoral, incestuous relationship. All right? And instead of mourning, the Corinthians were kind of boasting, bragging, rejoicing that they had all this freedom. Uh, so it was clearly an abuse of grace if you go back to Romans 6 and read that chapter, make a note of that. Chase these, chase these texts that I'm, I'm giving you. Now, step one, Paul told this church to mourn. He tells the Corinthians to mourn, okay? This man is engaged in something that is vile. Even among unbelievers, they don't do this. They know better. Their moral compass is, is more squared away than the moral compass of this man who is involved in an incestuous relationship, it seems, with his stepmother. 
Step two, do not associate with a brother if he is an immoral person. Don't associate with him. So Paul is not saying you don't associate with unbelievers. All unbelievers are immoral. All unbelievers to varying degrees are depraved. This is a professing Christian. There's a difference between the children of God and the children of the devil. The children of God are not unregenerate. They are not filled with all sorts of unrighteousness. They are not worthy of death. They have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. They have been filled with the Holy Spirit. They are keeping the commandments of Christ. They are walking in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. That's, that's the aim of the covenant community. That's the aim of the believer. Step three, remove the wicked man from among you, Paul tells the Corinthian church. Don't ignore it. Don't wink at it. Remove this person from among you. Now, this is important because Paul does this immediately. He does it publicly. He does it openly because the sin that was going on was open and broadcast in front of the entire world. Everybody saw this. So you've got this principle of the church being the light of the world, and that is being really damaged in this particular situation. The credibility, the moral integrity and fiber of the church in that community is now tainted. And Paul urges the Corinthians to take immediate action and remove the man from among them. And the principle here is to pur purge the leaven from the body. The covenant community cannot allow diseases into the body of Christ. The body of Christ, if you're going to love the church, if you're going to love the body of Christ, you have to care about both its doctrinal purity and its moral purity. And if you don't care about those things, then you don't love the body of Christ. We have all these people today in the churches running around talking about love, 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 love. They're talking about a kind of love that has, has been embraced by them and given to them from the American culture, from American society. This is an emotive, emotional, uh, kind of experiential sort of feeling kind of love. This is not the biblical kind of love that we see going on in Greco-Roman times when Jesus and the apostles walked in that part of the world. The kind of love that Jesus talks about, the kind of love that the apostles talk about is a profound, deep, meaningful love that takes action, that actually drills into these issues with the goal of helping those people who were caught up in these sorts of uh, life events. False doctrine, damnable doctrine, heretical doctrine, heterodoxy, immorality of all kinds, the, the body of Christ loves those people and it demonstrates that love, not by tolerating their immorality, not by tolerating their false doctrine, but by correcting it, right? Now, here's the principle, guys, the sign of genuine faith, the sign that a believer really loves God, the sign that a person is a real believer is that it may not be immediate, but eventually as they are confronted with their sin, whether it's a moral failing or a, a confessional doctrinal failing, they will repent. 
you see. As a Reformed theologian, I confess the doctrine of perseverance. Doesn't mean that we won't have lapses or trips, but it does mean that if we have genuine faith, when we fall into error, when we lapse, when we trip, the Holy Spirit will bring that to our attention. He is faithful to do that. He will do that. And he uses the body of Christ and brings to bear scripture on the situation and changes my conduct and, and pricks my heart and makes me miserable until I have come to my senses and repented of my failing, whatever it might be. And we can have full faith and confidence in the Holy Spirit, in the Word of God, that this is how it works. But if the person is an unbeliever, you don't want them in the covenant community. You don't want, you don't want to fill your community with unbelievers. And yet that the churches are filled with false converts, people who are living immoral lives, people who are confessing beliefs that are outright heresy, pastors who are living immoral lives, who are con, uh, preaching and teaching outright heresy, who are caught up in all of the nonsense that's going on out there today, and the church stands by and lets it happen. And when it does that, it is in direct disobedience to the teachings and the commandments of Scripture. It, when you refuse to excommunicate, when you refuse to discipline, you oppose God. Now, we come to another text. I want to shift gears over to 2 John 9 through 11. All right. The scenario is, again, false teachers going beyond the teaching of Christ. Right? Here's what John says. If someone brings such a teaching to you, going beyond the teaching of Christ which you have received, John says, do not receive him into your house. Second, do not even give him a greeting. This is more of a formal kind of a greeting where... Uh, the idea is that you are publicly okay with this person as a brother in Christ. John says don't do it. An example of this would be if I had a conference on um, a particular topic and I invited someone like Benny Hinn, who is an outright heretic, a charlatan among charlatans, and I invite him in, or I invite him into my church, or I, I do things, I conduct myself in a way that sends the signal to other people that I endorse Benny Hinn as a brother in Christ. If I do that, know this, I have disobeyed the inspired text of 2 John 9 through 11, and that is a serious matter. I am in disobedience to that scripture. I need to be called out for being in disobedience to that scripture, and I need to repent, and I need to acknowledge it. If I do this publicly, then I publicly need to come around and say, okay, I was wrong. I was wrong on the Benny Hinn issue. We could apply this uh, to the Michael Brown issue that has, has gone on for so long. I have Michael Brown's book. Uh, in his apologetic, his defense of the Brownsville revival. I've read that book. I've had it from the beginning when he first wrote that book because I was troubled by what I was seeing at that time. So it is in my library. And so far as I know, Michael Brown has never repented of 
writing that book and of the things that he claims in that book. And that's a real problem. So those people who point that out to say that you need to you need to watch your behavior when it comes to guys like Michael Brown are raising very legitimate issues. They're not being unbiblical whatsoever. They are actually being biblical. They're actually being loving. They're actually doing what the scriptures command us to do. And there is nothing unloving. There's nothing pugnacious. There's nothing wrong about that. Now, you could, you could be nasty about it if you, if you wanted to. Uh, so there is a, there's a right way to do this, and there's a wrong way to do it. But certainly, uh, whether or not we do it is not an option if you care about obedience. Right? Now, let's shift gears and, and travel back into the Old Testament. We had fencing the community going on in, in the Old Covenant community of, of Israel, in the theocracy. Okay, adultery. What would happen if a person, uh, if two people got caught in adultery? They were put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 22. Purge the evil from Israel. Okay. Uh, and then uh, in Leviticus 20, we have a, a string of civil penalties that range from stoning to exile and barrenness, but I want to focus on the stoning and, and the exile. The principle is the same. Remove the leaven from your midst. Purge the evil from Israel. So as the church looks back into the Old Testament and sees these, these commandments and sees the civil penalties uh, of, of death in many of these cases, right? Capital punishment. You stone the adulterers. You stone the homosexuals. You stone those people who are engaging in sexual immorality and who are violating the commandments of God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, God says that Israel is a holy people. They have been chosen by God. They have been separated all right, the idea of separation, separated from all the people of the earth. Therefore, you will keep the Lord God's statutes, commandments, and ordinances. So when the idea of separation comes up in, in modern society, as it did recently regarding the G3 conference, uh, you, you, it, the idea of separation is as biblical an idea as, you, as, as the gospel <laughs> It's everywhere in Scripture that we separate. And the church has a long history of this separation, and this goes all the way back into ancient Israel. So when someone talks about it, see, this is the issue that's going on in the churches right now. We are being infected with the values of American culture. Uh, it, they're everywhere. The way we think about issues and matters and so forth, uh, the, the, it is obvious that we are embracing and adopting values that are pagan, that are godless, you see. If we love the body, we will separate from those who are creating division, who are immoral, who are preaching heresy, who are damaging the gospel. And we can do that with call, without calling into question someone's heresy. You think about the social justice movement. I talked about this in the last podcast. You know, separate, you know, what does it look like to separate from those 
people, those proponents who are preaching this particular gospel. Uh, and I, I think that it is perfectly fine for a conference to say, look, uh, you have proclaimed, you have bought into the social justice gospel. You have written several articles uh, that advocate for a number of elements that are in that particular uh, ideology. And because of that, we think it best not to have you at this conference because we are concerned about the direction in which you are going. Now, if an individual, uh, if uh, let's say someone like a Mark Dever or a Russell Moore uh, or a Tim Keller or a Matt Chandler, if enough leaders do this with these kinds of, we'll call them celebrity pastors, which is really regrettable and unfortunate. But if enough people in the church, if enough leaders in the churches are doing this and confronting these men in this way, maybe it will generate repentance. Maybe it will change their heart. Maybe it will help them avoid this error. But to, con but to ignore it and to continue to just pat them on the back and invite them to conferences runs the risk of not doing enough for them to help them see the error of their way. And that is, that is really a challenge. Another sip of coffee. That is really a challenge. Um, now, I'm not, I'm not going to say, okay, so I may as well just say this. I am not comfortable telling John MacArthur or Phil, John or Phil Johnson or the G3 conference who to have at the conference, who not to have at the conference. I have a personal opinion. I have a personal preference. I would prefer that social justice proponents and advocates not participate in those conferences. That's my preference. Now, I'm not going to uh, be hi highly critical of Phil Johnson or John MacArthur or the G G3 conference for having them there. I will say I disagree with their presence there because I'm worried, I'm concerned about the message that it sends. But I'm going to stop there and say we can have a gentleman's disagreement over that. Uh, now, my, my attitude toward, the, toward uh, the David Platts, toward the John Pipers, toward the Tim Kellers is that uh, they, are in, they are seriously uh, moving the church in a direction that is, is very dangerous. And the church needs to rise up and put a stop to this. It's that plain and simple. And one of the ways you do that is you say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to recommend your books uh, any longer, and I'm not going to invite you to conferences. I'm going to de-link you from uh, my church's website. And when I, come, when I come across this issue in my church and I'm preaching, I'm going to mention names and let people know that you are no longer a reliable source when it comes to these particular topics because of the recent changes you've had in your teaching and preaching and your ideology. That's how we do that. All right, so let's, let's go back even further on fencing the community from, from the, uh, Deuteronomy. Let's now go back into Genesis. Adam and Eve uh, rebel against God. This is the scenario. Adam and Eve rebel against God. What happens? God curses them. God is gracious. He curses them. They, he, he separates himself from them, yet he clothes them. So he makes provision for them. And in step three, he excommunicates them from the garden. He kicks them out in Genesis 3.24. And then he fences off the garden, fences off the tree of life. Right? This is fencing 
a community. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, folks. All the way back to Genesis 3. And if you read the book of Revelation, obviously without our dogs, right, and sexually immoral and so on and so forth. So fencing the community in the future will be an eternal act. The sheep and the goats will be separated once and for all eternally. Now, a couple of quick items I want to touch on. How do you do this? Because there are pugnacious people amongst us. There are people that are filled with pride amongst us. I battle pride all the time, and I can tell you it is one of the most evil aspects of human nature that we struggle with. And I, I in particular, really struggle with it, something fierce. Um, and it is, um, I just have to rely on the grace of God to keep me from being so filled with pride and, and arrogant. It is, it is a daily struggle. Someone is caught, Galatians 6, 1, here's the scenario. Someone's caught up in a trespass. This is something, this isn't, this is not uh, uh, a, a lifestyle event. This is not, oh, he, the, this couple moved in together. They've been living with each other for the last three months. We just now found out about it. That's not what, that's not what this is. This is someone who maybe um, he fell into a, a sexual relationship with a person that is not his wife, or she fell into a sexual relationship, had an affair, or had sex with someone who isn't her husband. It's, the church has become aware of this. The elders have become aware of this. Paul says if someone finds himself in this position where they have sinned, the spiritual ones in the church are to go restore that person. So this is restorative, right? Restore them. But you do this in a spirit of gentleness. That's step two. Always have a gentle attitude toward this person. Why? Well, uh, because you have to consider your own sinfulness in the process. Next week, that could be you. And one of the worst attitudes you could ever adopt is, is uh, I would never do something like that. I would never uh, commit adultery on my husband or my wife. That is beyond me. I am above that. Pride goeth before the fall. Be very careful. You are a sinner too. And that's the point. So when we go to confront our brother or sister, we don't do it from the standpoint of arrogance. And we be very careful not to convey this idea that you are less than, you sinned, and I would never do that, and I'm not like you, and you're different. And, and, we, and here's another issue, guys. We recategorize people who do this to be in a different category than us. That is absurd. We are all sinners. The, were it not for the grace of God, we would be in the very same situation. We don't not sin because of something we are, something that we have in and of ourselves that's part of our fiber and, and fabric. We, we avoid sin because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives who's infusing grace and, and in embracing us and holding us up and we are held in the palm of his hand, right? Some people find themselves in a position where they've rejected that. They've, they've quenched the spirit and they find themselves in a very unpleasant, ugly situation that requires restoration, love, confrontation, training. All right, so to summarize, candidates for covenant membership are examined. This is the first thing on the, up front, on the, on the front side of this. 
you have to make sure that those people who are coming into your covenant community have been examined via uh, interviews, robust, detailed, meaty interviews. Examine their faith and examine their confession. Okay. Second, to confront somebody, you have to be sure that they really sinned. This can't be speculation. It has to, the the sin has to be obvious. You have to see it with clarity. There's no question mark about this. And you go to them and you talk. You, you confront them. Excommunication. Third, excommunication is not for let's say the sin of uh, uh, sexual immorality or any other sin like that. Say you've got a couple living together in your church and they're refusing to uh, repent. Uh, this could be true also for, say, a couple who have separated and are headed for divorce. And let's say they both want the divorce and they're refusing to repent. Or maybe one of them wants the divorce, the other one doesn't. And the one who wants it is refusing to reconcile, even though they do not have biblical grounds for divorce. And the only biblical grounds for divorce are there too. Unbeliever abandonment and unrepentant adultery. Those are the two grounds for divorce. There are no other grounds for divorce. The, and let's say the people are, are refusing to repent. The refusal to listen to the church is what gets a person excommunicated, not the continued adultery. It's the refusal to repent, the refusal to obey the elders and the body of the church. Now, this isn't just the elders that are confronting him. This is the whole church, not the elders, the whole church. I understand what the, the Presbyterians do. I think they're wrong. This is the entire church who have been told about this, and they are confronting this individual. Fourth, confrontation requires sober, sober and serious humility. Always remember your own sinful self. We must always keep that in mind. And then finally, fifth, forgiveness is the hope. Purity is the goal. You want the individual to be restored, forgiven, and that's your hope. At a minimum, purity is the goal. If they repent, you have achieved purity. If they don't, you must execute, ex execute them, excommunicate them, and you have purified the body. Right? That is the point. I, ho I hope that you've benefited from something I've said here today. If you have any questions, by all means, uh, the podcast is, is uh, over on Reformed Reasons. You feel free to leave a comment. Feel free to ask questions. Um, and until I rant again, shalom. Thank you.